From 11FS, I'm David Breer, and this is Fintech Insider News. Today, we bring you Bank of England ushers in a new era of finance. Revolut says no to IPO for now, and Monzo hits $2 billion, while TransferWise heads over to the US. And 11 rules for mental health accessibility in banking services. All this and much, much more on today's news show. All right, welcome to episode 335 of Fintech Insider. We're coming to you live from the 11FS HQ in London town. A very, very sunny London town as well, which is kind of cool. I'm feeling... uh, Probably like I'm going to ignore most of the notes, so let's see where we go on this one. All right, uh, I'm David Brewer, and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Mr. Simon Taylor. How's it going? I'm enjoying the sun. Um, it, like, summer did not come in the UK until, like, today. So I'm really happy to be on a podcast where there is sunshine outside and I'm inside and can't see the sun. Uh, <laughs> but there is, there's, there's booze here. So. I mean, at some point we should start doing these outside, foreshadowing oh. after dark next week. Oh. Anyway, let's get on. All right. Um, so first up, from a uh, guest perspective, we have uh, Mr. James Ferretti. Is that am I saying? Ferretti. Ferretti. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Solutions engineer at TransferWise. How's it going? Yeah, really good. Thanks. So happy to be here. I mean, foreshadowing some of the stories here. You guys mm. have been busy, but we'll get into that. Yeah, shortly. definitely. I think picked a very convenient week for me to be here. So thanks, guys. Indeed. <laughs> uh, next up, we've got Alfie Marsh, who's the UK and Ireland sales manager at Spendesk. How does it going? Hello. Very well, thank you. Alfie, you know Seb quite well in the Pulse team, right? <laughs> We're doing this. Yes, I do. Yeah. Uh, can you explain <clears throat> um, some stories about how you might know him? So, well, Seb's a good friend, um, but I think the story you may be referring to is the, potentially the ballet with his mum. Hey. You went to a ballet with Seb's mum. And a couple of other 70-year-olds, yeah. <laughs> yeah <but that's>... Twice. <laughs> I mean, at least it wasn't just the two of you, I guess. Yeah. The, <laughs> this is true. <laughs> <laughs> Need to have words with Seb. Okay. And uh, next up, we've got Evo Weavers, who is the Chief Product and Design Officer at Asto. How's it going? Hi there. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. I mean, you didn't commute from far for this one, did you? Just around the corner, I think. Yeah, convenient. Like, now we know where you are. This is going to be like a regular thing, I think. You know where you are. Oh, terrifying. Uh, And (laughs) making a welcome return, we have Mel Palmer, who's the CMO over at XO Investing. How's it going? Really well. So lovely to be back. So thanks for having me. No problem at all. All right, let's get on with the news. All right, first up, we have a story on the FT, which is Bank of England welcomes in the tech companies for the first time. I mean, it's not sure it's them welcoming in tech companies for the first time, but they're like really giving it a go this time, right? Uh, I think what's different here is they're actually uh, allowing access to payment systems. So they would talk to them before. But, and I mean the deep down infrastructural payment systems. So I think there are a number of fintechs who had gotten access to um, faster payments already. Um, and I think that had started to open up. But the Bank of England operates more payment systems than it will, has responsibility for more payment systems than faster payments and operates several of its own as well. So it's really deeply plugging people into that, but also to its balance sheet. Uh, And that's where things get really, really interesting. The ability to hold central bank money on your balance sheet allows you to lend at completely different rates, uh, and it makes them, uh, puts them in a completely different league. So uh, really interesting speech that he had. I thought it was phenomenal. Yeah, I mean... Not all speeches in England went in all entirely well this week, did they, with um, protests and whatnot, which was kind of interesting. But um, I think Mark Harney's one, particularly, as, as you say, this week was pretty impressive. Did you guys catch what he said? 
you missed out on it. Man, he basically, like, the Bank of England have been very, very quiet on actually any position on most of these things. They came out really, really in favor, not only in the similar way that the FCA have been doing over the last few years for real wholesale change in this space, but equally, he even started commenting on things like the Facebook cryptocurrency that's come through. Yeah, so he said he has an open mind but not an open door approach to Facebook and its proposed digital currency, Libra, um, which, again, sounds uh, phenomenally open-minded, but also... uh, I think there's a recognition in there that uh, Libra has a long way to go before it's anything that's going to go live. But I can't make a speech about tech companies and then say, oh, I'm not, but I've got a closed mind to that, even though potentially the way Libra's set up, it looks like it competes with, with central banks. This is kind of going the other way. This is saying, actually, tech companies come and talk to us rather than trying to say that our infrastructure is bad we're going to upgrade our infrastructure. And this is set against the context, of course, of the Bank of England spending a lot of time and effort on upgrading a lot of its payment systems from the 70s and 80s so that tech companies can start to come into it, but fintechs and banks as well. Mm. Yeah, and this is something that we at TransferWise are very, very happy about, it has to be said. Uh, You know, it's really advantageous for us. Currently, we're not a bank, we're we're an e-money provider, so that means that all of our funds that are held in our accounts have to be safeguarded. And we currently do that in commercial banks because that's our only choice. But now that the Bank of England are opening this up to people like us, it means that we can provide that added level of security by having our money held in the central bank, which is really, really great for our customers. You know, we get a lot of our business customers who want to hold a larger balance sheet with us uh, a little bit worried, kind of rightly so, that we're not FSCS protected because we're not a bank. Of course, we're holding that in massive commercial banks. So, you know, we like to think that it's really, really safe in there. It's very unlikely that those guys are going to go bust completely. But at the end of the day, having this in the Bank of England is obviously one added layer of security on top of that. So. It allows you to play to a different client base and, and scale up the operations and just give more confidence to that customer base that know that these things are fine. Uh, and the statement here that's by giving access to ultra-safe, cheap banking services to new payment providers, the Bank of England actually hopes it can support support financial stability and allowing payment systems to continue to operate even if the big banks themselves go bust. Yeah, exactly our position, yeah. And actually, that's a really interesting point 11 years on from the financial crisis that if the big banks go bust, you still have a functioning payment system. Mm. Do you think also part of that is kind of a diversification play from them to try and make sure, okay, we've said we need to you know, make sure things are not too big to fail, uh, but how are you going to do that? Uh, but obviously, into bringing in new entrants into the market. And it's almost like a, a validation that there are other players here. And this is a sort of a first official validation. Mm. The other thing said um, about Libra and I think the tech players, um, Facebook and others, was um, there are stringent rules that they have to follow, as, mm. as you know, TransferWise will attest to. You know, this, this isn't easy. This isn't making the bar lower. In fact, the opposite. This is a very, very difficult thing to hit. But actually, the, the speech, I would recommend you go read it. It's called A New Finance. And the opening couple of paragraphs were just unbelievable from a central banker. There's a new economy emerging driven by changes in technology, demographics, and the environment. Pretty unsurprising at that point. But the new economy requires a new finance, a new finance to serve the digital economy, a new finance with products that are more cost-effective, better tailored, and more inclusive, a new finance to support the transition to a sustainable economy, a new finance that balances innovation with resilience. A couple of things in there that you wouldn't have heard from a central banker 10 years ago. 
Oh, well, I mean, he definitely wants a new finance by the sounds of things. <laughs> uh, either that's his bullet point that he's yeah. making for each of these sentences, right? Yeah, and I think, I mean, you say you wouldn't hear that from a central banker 10 years ago. You still wouldn't hear that from a lot of central bankers in a lot of other countries. Yeah. The Bank of England are very forward thinking and, and we applaud them for that at TransferWise. You know, they've been very helpful to us and in return, we hope we've helped them in, in shaping some of these decisions. Um, but, you know, I think the important thing here is that other countries take note of this and, and start to also think about how they should be changing how they operate. Mm. I, I hadn't really considered the point that you were making about actually the the changes that this gives to e-money providers, because actually to your point, then the the increasing difference, I guess, both from a consumer perspective, but actually from an organizational perspective of a full banking license and an e-money license is going to be interesting, isn't it? Especially with, you know, we've got uh, Stripe and Facebook and various different people holding e-money licenses. It might change the dynamic of that, whether, you know, the, the benefit of somebody still holding a balance sheet but being able to materially benefit from that, that will be really interesting to see. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a massive, massive move from the Bank of England. I think a lot of innovation in the markets, like fintech, for example, comes when legal, legal frameworks change or massive infrastructural changes are made. Um, PSD2, even though we're not there yet, uh, but the first steps are being made, was a massive initiator of new fintech starting i think this is another big move that you know allows new players the ones that are already out there but i think also new entrants to the market just to do things that have never been done before so i think it's a fantastic move and i think another example along the lines of psd2 would when the bank of england and the pra introduced the uh the option i think it was 1b or 2b which is the the alternative route to getting a banking license which is the license subject to conditions that has really changed the game. The, the fact that there was another route to get banking license meant that in this wave of fintech innovation, suddenly there was a way to become a bank where you know, there weren't many new banks being built. And then we saw this wave of it. So it's amazing how this this kind of small regulatory activity that sounds a bit nerdy can mean now you've got really bright colored cards and a different level of customer service. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That was always the aim, right? <laughs> I think the bright colored cars were slightly flippant, but yes. <laughs> but the better customer service is kind of awesome. But sure. I think also that resiliency point, like if there is another financial crisis. For sure. All right, let's move on to the next story. So over on financial news, we have that Revolut eyes a big bucks before IPO. So Revolut chief has uh, come out in an interview that he was doing with financial news that he is eyeing a 20 billion valuation before they IPO. Um, so ruled out any... Uh, IPO in the near future as he targets another private funding raise later this year. Wow. Uh, so he's basically coming out, and the 20 billion was actually the low end of this. So he's actually saying, need to hit a valuation between 20 and 40 billion before a stock market float. Which, as a number in itself, I was like looking at that and I was like, it's like when you go out for dinner and you're like, oh, it'd be like, you know, 30 to 35 pounds a head. But it's like, yeah, somewhere between 20 and 40 billion. And you're just like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that changes the entire industry if that yeah. kind of valuation comes well, out. Well, you think so. that's, that's Stripe and Adjun combined. Yeah. Uh, or that's Square plus a bit, right? It, th- that's a massive, massive company. That's uh, what, if you think about uh, what a global... Uh, payment services or whoever they were the quietesis for or something or that mm. it's, it's I mean, that kind of number it was like, like IPO 23 billion or something I think yeah yeah, yeah WorldPay was what 36 bill so yeah. I mean none of us have said they're not going to do it 
Yeah. Which is it's, it's just it's kind of interesting. I guess with all of the valuations that we've sort of seen recently, you know, were and actually, I think the interesting thing is actually we're, we've been in a situation where the US have been sort of pointing at Europe and go, going, well, you've not got any unicorns. And now we've got loads of unicorns. Now we're getting into like serious territory in terms of the momentum behind that. I mean, I think the interesting point also is what timescale are we talking here? You know, if they continue on the trajectory that they're on and ourselves and Monzo are kind of on a similar trajectory, right? Like kind of doubling every 18 months. It's what, five years away-ish? Quick maths. But um so it doesn't seem that unreasonable. I mean, everything has to go well for them, obviously, but hopefully it does. Yeah, I, I guess going back to Mark Carney's points is, I mean, there's only so many humans on the planet and actually there are only so many places where they're non-banked. And most of the places that people like yourselves and Monzo and, and Revolut are going into are, are predominantly banked still. So this is actually charting a territory for tier one banks of reasonably major decline over the next five years. Again, I'm not saying that's not the case because you can you can see a lot of that pointing towards that. But I guess it's almost like the things we have to believe for a 40 billion valuation for Revolut is uh, NatWest and uh, BBVA and B- uh, Bank of America and these guys really dramatically lowering their, um, their holding in terms of mainstream customers. Um, again, not saying that this is not possible. I actually believe it probably is. But it's um, maybe just the reality of the, um, for the, particularly for the big organizations, kind of biting in. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting sign of the times in terms of the numbers of the valuations, and it is clearly a big number. Uh, but in terms of some of the IPOs that we have been seeing and the valuations and the unicorns that have been coming out, it's not out of this world. Uh, what I think would be quite interesting to, to have a think about is, is that actually a sign of investors uh, getting involved in the hype, or is that actually based on their thoughts of where they're going to be in five, ten years' time? Mm. Well, so it has been IPO season. Mm. Uh, we've seen Uber, Lyft, countless others, uh, Zoom, many, many more. And, of course, there's, there's um, with the uh, Treasury yield curve inversions, there's a lot of people saying we're heading towards a bear market. Um, with the Trump tariffs, could we be heading towards a bear market? Could be the market be coming down? So there's been a, a, a sort of a hive of this activity. So the timeline point that you made earlier is an interesting one because, yeah, what is the time horizon here and what, how many customers do they need and what's the average revenue per user from that customer base? Because mm. they, they've done well in European growth. They've moved into Australia now. They've got 20,000 people on the waiting list. They've applied for licenses in Asia. If that plan plays out and they can get the average revenue per user there, I think the interesting thing about Revolut as well is they were one of the first to go for the um, uh, kind of the the cards that you pay the subscription fee on, and yes, and actually they have a pretty good usage of that. They've they've proven that that model can be made to work uh, if you build it correctly. So so maybe maybe they get it done. Yeah, I mean, they've got a hugely captive audience as well, and they don't necessarily have to just keep themselves within finance to get that valuation as well. If you've got that many people who are willing to work with you and you've got the power to get the partnerships that people want, I mean, that number then gets even higher. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a, it's, it's so true. Once you've got the user base there and you can create a product line and switch that on and you get all of half those users onto that, you can up the revenue pretty quickly. So in this sort of fast growth, you want to be able to catch the market as much as you can to be able to do that later on. Yeah, and they've shown a good ability to do that in you know all their sort of ancillary products that they can convert people to. So it's not just that they're a bank. You know, they are offering all of these other services as well. So. Yeah. I think this um, raises another point is like, you like what we see here is, and this is a discussion that comes up all the time, is that suddenly there is this bridge between a private market that is very tech 
oriented and very expertise in tech world. And the public market tends to be have a very different view. That's why we always have these discussions about, oh, is this valuation right or wrong? Uh, the public has a very conservative view about how companies should be valued. Um, the private market has a very different view because they tend to be forward-looking and understand the tech world much better. Um, so I think within a private space, probably, you know, if you keep growing and you show value all the time, it probably makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, like from a public perspective, if you relate it suddenly to IPO, suddenly the world changes, uh, like from a perspective uh, point of view, from a public perspective, it probably doesn't make sense because people think very differently about companies, right? But, but in big tech, that's been the case for a while. The investor search for yield means that um, growth stocks tend to have a, tend to look massively overvalued on a uh, price to earnings ratio, whereas your yield stocks tend to look underpriced, even though they're pumping out dividends by doing share buybacks. We're in a weird topsy-turvy market um, as we've come out of all of the QE of the past couple of decades. The thing that stuck out to me was um, this statement uh, in this interview, and I don't know if it's how the um, kind of the, the journalist has recorded it or what was actually said, but Storonsky says that Revolut needs to hit a valuation of 20 to 40 billion before the IPO. So is that something that their investors have set for them as a target as well? well that, I think that's, that's a very interesting point. And that's something is, what is, what is, is this good or is this bad? What's the, what's the thinking behind that? Is that a case of I need to get there whilst the market's buoyant enough to be able to get to that valuation? Or do I actually keep private fundraising and I have more control over my yeah. company? Yeah, and I think it's a question of what drives an IPO. Because yeah, for, trans- yeah. for TransferWise, you know, the only reason we would want to IPO is it can bring some value to our customers. And we don't see a reason to do it right now because we don't think it's going to do anything to help them and solve the mission that we're aiming for. So mm. I think that comes to mission, doesn't it? I think that's an interesting point because it, it can somewhat change the trajectory of a company to a certain degree in terms of the, the purpose of it. You know, you've got a, a very different number of customers to be serving as well as your end consumers, if that makes sense. But I mean, man, 20 billion is a lot of money and it kind of makes the next story sound like it sucks because, I mean, <laughs> Monzo has just achieved something amazing Amazing, being valued at two billion, but that's their valuation now, not their target. I mean, I'm just saying though, it just seems like like I feel like um, you know that Doctor Evil sketch where it's like you ask for a silly number that's not actually a silly number. Yeah. Now that they're worth two billion, and we were talking about twenty to forty billion, it just doesn't seem enough. So anyway, after we're in that um, that uh, heady days of that amount of money, this seems weird. But Monzo have now got to a point where they've raised another hundred and thirteen million to help fund it. US expansion, which actually, I, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, 113 million to try and crack the US probably isn't a great deal of money given all of the things that they're going to have to put in place, even purely from a regulatory perspective. But um, the round was led by a US investment firm, Y Combinator, which, if I remember rightly, I think Tom Blomfield's actually got connections with in the past. Yeah, he? he's an alumni, as is Jonas. This, Former CTO, former uh, CTO. Uh, with a number of other participation from Latitude, General Catalyst, Stripe, Passion Capital, who were the, I think, the OGs of uh, kind of investing in those guys, and a bunch of other people. So, I mean, this comes just eight months after reaching its first billion. So, in eight months, they've essentially doubled their value. Yeah. Man, I'm glad I work in fintech, aren't you? Like, this is... <laughs> glad I bought shares. Yeah. Yay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, crowdfunding. It's got to be the best time to be doing this. Really. Yeah. So. I just think it's fantastic that, uh, like, uh, some UK companies actually are stepping foot in, like, in the US, I think. This is, like, a clear sign that, you know, the companies that are being built here actually have a... Have a have an opportunity to you know go global and like for going global like you have to go to the US 
and that they're doing now. I mean, it requires money, so like I, like, I think it makes sense. Like, they need to have funds to answer it, but I think it's just a, a fantastic move to see that happening. Yeah. Well, I, I guess, you know, talking about one company moving to the US, there's probably another one in the room who is. So uh, do you want to maybe talk about that now as well? Oh, well, okay. You know, I don't mind. I'll let you insure it. I'm not going to do your job for you, I guess. Uh, oh, man. Somebody's got to do this. I was going to have a drink. All right. Um, so not to be outdone by that, we have TransferWise also heading over stateside. So uh, TransferWise to open borderless accounts over in the US. Um, take it away. Yeah, so we have our borderless account at TransferWise. It's a multi-currency account with a card that lets you spend that money wherever you are in the world at the real exchange rate and nice, very low fees. Uh, we launched it in Europe last year. It's a great success. We're now holding, or we've seen 10 billion come into our accounts through it uh, over the past year. And um, we're now launching that card in the US uh, to try and uh, enter that market and try and help the people over there who are uh, especially feel the pinch um, on when they travel and when they're using their, spending their dollars abroad. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's really interesting because the, the problems you can start solving for completely different markets is really, really interesting, isn't it? And I think one of the things that we're sort of consistently seeing out of the quotes of why um, both the investors are coming into organizations like yourselves or Monzo or, or Revolut is, uh, and actually one of the things that I thought was really interesting from the one uh, the Monzo story was, People are kind of seeing statistics that we're only used to seeing from an adoption perspective in social media, not in financial services. And people like you are, what was it, $3 billion, $3.3 billion or something it was valued at? Uh, yeah, $3.5 billion. Yeah, the latest valuation. Sorry, I knocked yeah. off $200 million just for... <laughs> Yeah, rounding error at this point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. those 200 million mugs, friends, really. Yeah, um, but yeah, in that sense, it's like, it's just amazing how quickly great services are being adopted. Um, and I guess to back to incumbent organizations, it's very easy to get into a situation where you're worrying about TransferWise versus Revolut versus Monzo versus Starling. Um, but in a world where you guys are rapidly changing and delivering new capability, the gap between the incumbent organizations and you guys is only going to get bigger, right? Yeah, and I think exactly to your point, worrying about the competition between the fintechs probably isn't the important thing. If we think about the number of people in the States that are getting ripped off every time they travel, um, that's the sort of people we're looking to help. So we're not trying to steal Revolut's customers. You know, there's plenty of others that are out there for, for us to take from the banks and for us to help in that way. I think that point about engagement metrics is so powerful because uh, it ain't what you do, it's the way you do it. It's, it's like, how much do people love this thing? Actually, people are still, I think, looking at this uh, with the lens of what does it do? Does it have a card? Does it have a give me a statement? Can I use it? Or does it do some PFM things? So there's a pie chart as if it's like a tick list of things that you need to do without realizing, no, no, it's not about any of those things yet are they do they exist in the app yes or no like you don't have to have a pie chart to have great engagement like sometimes maybe something visual is helpful in the right context but maybe it's about notifications maybe it's about how you communicate maybe it's those things that were like softer cells maybe it's how explainable your terms and conditions are that just don't feel like things that are prioritized they feel like something that you just have to do to get the product out of the door so that you can make money and i think that mindset shift here is 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 really key yeah, and I think it's really important. I think we get stuck in the kind of London fintech bubble and we think everybody knows what a Monzo card is or what a Revolut card is. And um, I'm going on holiday to the States and my dad's just got a Starling card because we're going abroad. And he rings me up and he's like, 
oh, I've got my styling card. And I went into the shop and I showed the lady. She was like, oh my God, I've never seen anything like it. And that's a kind of interaction to do with banking that never happened before. And, you know, I think it was Starling who said that they're growing bigger outside of London now than they mm. are inside. So there's even that, there's still that massive element of change. And I think going to the US, particularly where contactless not everywhere is is a thing yet and they're still kind of just moving to chip and pin there's a massive shift that can happen and people are now having that conversation that they weren't before yeah i love that it's still early i think that's a that's a great concept um shamir karkal who was one of the founders of simple said on twitter um and this is his tweet uh, he put it out a couple of days ago basically saying if you live in the u.s and travel internationally you should get this immediately and you can re- use my referral link too uh, but i think there's something about like that going after a niche, solving a problem that uh, just wasn't solved for or was painful before, and using that as a beachhead to jump off and do other things is super interesting. Yeah, and the other important part of this is solving a problem for real people, but often they don't realise that problem exists, so it's it's so much about the education as well as it is about the product actually existing. You know, We need to get out there and what we're doing and what all our marketing teams are obviously pushing is making it clear to people how much it does cost them to spend on their travel card or their you know, their normal bank's card when they're travelling as opposed to what it would cost with those. And, yeah, to that point, it's, it, it, I think that's very true and it's, there's not much point in talking about the sort of difference in what does, uh, you know, TransferWise do different to Revolut because to the people that don't know what their problems are, uh, it's irrelevant to them. It's more how does that impact my life? What's the emotional story behind that? What does that empower me to do? And I think that's something that's super important to communicate. I think what's interesting as well is the community-driven engagement from Monzo versus TransferWise. You've gone a bit of a different route with the marketing. Well, there is a community element. There's, there's, uh, you've got a different brand ambassador. There's, there's some above-the-line stuff you're looking to do. Yes, yeah, so it's one thing we're definitely focused as well. This isn't just a travel card, but our borderless accounts always also solves a, a big problem for immigrants. Uh, so people coming into the US who may find it difficult to open a bank account with all of the different uh, regulations involved, the same if they're coming into the UK or any any of the, the five currencies where we offer real local bank details to people that they can get through our app. Uh, and so what that means is that we can really help people who are, are global people and moving around the world, you know, setting up a new life in a new country. And so our, our ambassador that we've brought on board, Tan France from Queer Eye, He's just an absolute, you know, perfect example of that as, you know, born in Doncaster, moved to the US. Um, he's a true global guy, really, you know, he likes to live what we say is like people without borders. He really is one of those people. So I think it makes perfect sense for him to be our investor. I mean, as a Doncaster boy, we don't talk about Doncaster on this podcast enough, so uh, I'm all for that. <laughs> oh, I'm Sheffield, so... Uh, all right. Halifax, West Yorkshire, represent. Yeah, Yorkshire massive. Right. Right. Yorkshire, <laughs> all right. I mean, not to be outdone, actually, on the next story, it's not all just fintechs expanding in this sense. This is RBS's bidding for Tesco Mortgage Book. Um, so this was over on Sky News. This was a story that RBS is pursuing its biggest acquisition since the financial crisis. I'm not sure if there's cause and effect there. Uh-huh. Um, for Tesco Bank's 3.7 billion of mortgage book. Um, if RBS succeeds in buying these assets, it would be mark RBS's largest acquisition since its 45.5 billion taxpayer bailout. I mean, like the taxpayer bailout, I feel like NatWest and um, RBS are never going to get away from that being <laughs> like the, yeah, but this happened. Do you remember line, when that it? thing happened in yeah. 2008? Yeah. I was like, I was an idiot in 2008. Look, we all get drunk sometimes. Um, so, I mean, this is an interesting one. Is this RBS a little bit sort of coming out of their shell and trying to get a bit more on the uh, the sort of offensive? 
Um, I mean, offensive in the not defensive sense rather than yeah, offensive, yeah. just what's the word for it? Going out to score goals and succeed. There yes. we go, yes, <laughs> that one. Um, I think so. I think what's happening uh, in the fintech space at the moment uh, is that we see massive consolidation happening. Um, like they co- acquired, obviously, on the bookkeeping side, free agent yep. uh, last year. Uh, Santander bought uh, the company I founded, Albert. Um, and uh, we see other banks that are now stepping in by investing or M&A like uh, other players in the um, uh, in the financial world, basically. So I think what's happening here is, is that banks understand that they have to move in a different way in order to be more competitive and uh, almost like protect themselves from all the other things that are happening in the fintech space. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not... So I think it's a sign for RBS. I think it's a sign for the whole fintech landscape that these things are happening at the moment. As one of the larger lenders as well, mortgages had historically been a scale game. And I think in this economic environment, post-financial crisis, post-ring fencing, where the net interest margin had been compressed, you've seen people exiting the bottom of the market. The smaller lenders are starting to kind of disappear. There's there's value in just consolidating. If they have a larger balance sheet, they can be more profitable through the lending that they do in a more, just the way the economic economics work. I wonder what does this mean for the customers? You know, what's the how many people are going to just move directly across and be serviced or how many of these will get some attrition? Um, and I think NatWest have got their new sort of paperless mortgage application as well. So, you know, maybe they're making a real push to, to play there and uh, do something different. It's an interesting because our, uh, Tesco was essentially a spin out of RBS in the beginning if I remember rightly. So, I mean, it's an interesting play, isn't it? Yeah, like it was a JV, home. they spun it out, and now they're pulling the customers back in. It's yeah. kind of a bit of a weird one. Yeah, and it's just a very interesting time to kind of be um, big and bold in the economic cycle. Uh, kind of with the, where interest rates are low and the potential, it's uh, it's just a very interesting play, I think, from that perspective. Indeed. All right. Well, on that note, we probably better go and fill up our cups because mine's definitely empty, and we'll be back very shortly. This deal sets apart. That this economy okay, is... We need to get down yeah. to business. Yeah. 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 Clearly the pressure is yeah. beginning. Business investment. Jobs. The more you hear about Brexit, the less clear it all becomes. When everyone else is shouting, listen. For the clarity behind the headlines, subscribe to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. If you didn't know by now, we are hiring and for various different roles. So if you want to go and check that out, go over to 11FS.com forward slash careers to find your dream, dream job. All right, let's get on with the show. Next up, we have over on Business Insider, this is Apple Credit Card, the latest. So Apple is one step closer to launching its sleek new credit card. That sounds slightly like, you know, the boogeyman's coming. It's nearly here, guys. One step Um, closer. I know. Just to really, like, 
amp up the level of fear. But I guess, you know, not being funny, but going back to the stories that we had earlier on, because I don't think there's anything too much new here from a, a content perspective in terms of actually what they're announcing that they're doing. But I mean, if big US banks shouldn't be fearful of all of the uh, European startups coming over to kind of steal their, their their customers, then actually they maybe should be really, really scared of the big technology companies already in the US looking to steal their customers. So, I mean, either way, big US banks are in for a bit of a hiding, right? It's going to be interesting times. What do you guys think on this one? Apple Card? Like, would you have one? I mean, I could not have one because I've signed up for the waiting list and I'm like, okay, hey, get it ready. But I don't know. I don't know how much I would use it over something else. Like having a digital card is not a new experience now. I mean, obviously in the US, potentially for a lot of people, it would be. Um, but I kind of had this weird thought earlier. Where I was like, oh, the reason that Apple's always been so successful is they were a premium product that they had massive margins on. And now they're entering the finance industry that then they have to basically give people money to use their products. And it's almost an antithesis of what they want to do. I don't know. I was just kind of like, it's, it's a really different business model for them to do. And I know they've got the balance sheet to do it. But I can't imagine what Apple looks like if this is successful in kind of 20 to 30 years' time. Mm, it's in, that is interesting, actually. And uh, I guess to the point, it's uh, Apple Pay is only 1% of their total revenue. But actually, I wonder what their aspiration of what percentage it will be in 5, 10 years' time. And 1% of a massive revenue line, right? I mean, if you were to compare what Apple Pay's revenue is, um, just consider the balance sheet of, of, of Apple Compare that um, payments line to some you know, mid-sized bank, you know, tier two banks in Europe, for instance, it would still be pretty meaty. Um, so they're not doing bad. And also the way you make money, I guess, on, on the credit card is, is not the fees that come around it. Yes, there's the interchange in the US, which is significant, but they're giving most of that back um, in terms of the, the cash back. But it's it's then the interest. Can I get you to revolve? Mm-hmm. And, and given that they're going for a premium customer base, can they get revolvers or will they get transactors? Because... Once people get above a certain income, they stop using credit cards to get out, you know, to, to deal with they can't make it through the month and they start using it for the points and then you don't make money out of them the same way. So interesting question as to whether that's, you know, what's the business case for them? Mm. I think it just shows that uh, in the end, the customers are choosing a brand because, not because of a uh, commoditized bank account, but because of the reasons. Um, like at, at uh, Santander, this is the reason why they launched Asto, because they realized that, uh, so, so Asto basically focuses on bringing new value to SMEs, and they realized that you know owning and maintaining this customer relationship is critical for actually being able to introduce financial services to them. Mm. Um, if, you know, if you don't own the customer relationship in the end, uh, and you're just like a bare-bone bank account, then... Th- I, I don't think there's a way forward there. What Apple's doing here is the opposite, and I think that's where the market will be going. Yeah, I think I've made this point a bunch of times before. It's like reasonably ironic that we all work in financial services, given how lack of services there is in financial services. You know, it very much turned into a product industry. And actually, I think what many of these things, whether it's people around the table or whether it's people like Apple, it's putting that service back into it, the day-to-day reinforcement of why you're with that company. Um, and that's just such a different mindset. We could take like a zoom in look at it and a zoom out look at it. If we take a zoom in and what actually is this in in essence in itself, it's not that exciting. Um, But if we take a step back and look at it, it's a visionary company who's got a great reputation of uh, tapping into the hearts and emotions of their clients um, who look at resolving problems in a very different way uh, to existing companies. So I think when you take a step back, what this initial uh, kind of you know, move is, is not that, not that uh, kind of um, innovative, but in the long term, it would be great to see what actually comes from them. 
I think that's the difference between invention and innovation, though. They haven't invented anything. Mm. What they've done is they've innovated around the product. Like, for the US market to have something that's zero fees, um, no late fee, no annual fee, no fee for using the card internationally, like, that is on that service side. It's this premium product. It is something that you just... it. It's not a pain in your ass. It's not trying to catch you out. It's not like, oh, oh you did a thing. There's a fee for that. You know, it, it's very on brand for them. And that's, that is innovation, I think, in the product sense. And I think people look at innovation as if you've got to have AR laser beams with some AI IoT garbage. <laughs> you say every single yeah. word. But, 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 but actually, <laughs> Apple don't do that. The Apple are the masters of taking things away rather than adding. Uh, like he's a salty Google guy though, so he's like, no, Apple does no in innovation. They just like, <laughs> well, no, but like Google would go too far the other way. They they throw features at things before they're ready, and nerds like me absolutely love that fact. And then three years later, when Apple people get it, they go, oh my god, I've got a new thing, and I'm like, yeah, I've had that thing for a All while, right, yeah. but my version was a lot clunkier. So, All right, burn. <laughs> Anybody want to say anything else before I move on? Oh, only, I guess, around the distribution, that they've already got all of the customers. So if you think you've got other all entrants... <laughs> I say that, that's coming from my, like, Apple world, where I'm having Apple. But in the US, when you've got entrants coming over from the UK, but they already have their distribution mm. in place at a massive scale, that will be a huge challenge, I think. And a lot of cash. And a lot of money, yeah. <laughs> interesting, then, they're almost not using too much of their own cash, though, aren't they? Because I guess the interesting thing... the, the, the really the interesting thing I think on this is like I mean they're still not really in it like Goldman Sachs are carrying so much of this in terms of the balance sheet and actually all the regulatory burden so like I mean it looks like they've copied a European challenger bank app from Europe and then put a nice card along it and their brand and perversely that might be enough <laughs> do you know what I mean like that brand might be so strong that it can acquire so many customers to do it well and, and in the US it's not contactless then Apple Pay it's just Apple Pay you, you don't think about having a contactless card. Like, that's still the customer education piece. You just think about Apple Pay. And that's in the consumer mindset. So they're in, they're in a completely different position from that perspective. And to me, that's what I think they're trying to do here is, you know, really, really bolster that Apple Pay proposition by having the card and having the, the fully integrated vertical of that. And you can imagine how they take this further with apps integrated into the App Store. And, and obviously, a lot of them today already offer Apple Pay and Google Pay. Well, if you know you're building an iPhone app and you know every single one of your app users has an Apple card, you'd be an idiot not to build Apple Pay into your app so it's a way for them to kind of enforce that almost that you know everything runs through apple pay of its app store indeed all right and we bow down to our apple overlords uh, very shortly well you may but all right. <laughs> all right moving on over on money saving expert so this is lloyd's becomes the first bank to sign up to the mental health accessible standards so this is uh lloyd's banking group has the uh become the first major organization to sign up to the mental health accessibility standards which have been created to make essential services easier to use for millions of people um as i kind of read this earlier on in the week if you guys didn't catch it we did a Fintech Insider on air, which was a show where we had Bailey Kassar from Toucan, who is um, really sort of focusing on actually trying to address some of these problems. Um, we sort of talked through some of these things. So, I mean, pause what you're doing, go and watch that, come back. You did it, right? Good. Okay. 
Right. I mean, you're on your commute or you're listening at work or wherever you are. Like, you've got access to YouTube. Just go do it now. You could do that. So, you check it out. On Air is a great show, by the way. Indeed. Um, like, the uh, standards are really interesting. Like, as I read it, I read it in the same way that when you go and read something like a DDA accessibility standard. Like, it reads like, and actually the way in which they are, they're looking to enforce it is awarding people various different ratings in this space, whether you're I'm, within accessibility, it's like A, AA, AAA type, type vibe. Um, and, and I guess what we sort of got into with the, the conversation with Bailey was really about whether this is something that actually enough is being done about. And the real conclusion, not wanting to spoil it for everybody who didn't actually bother going and listening to that, mm -hmm. that uh, when I just in instructed you too, is... I mean, so much has happened over the last three years to get to the point where actually we're creating standards and actively trying to encourage people to not only do something but show them what they can do, but that there's just such a long space for, for people to do these things. My, my argument was um, treating, especially at the point where statistically it's one in four people who've got uh, some sort of mental health challenge, then actually, I mean, banks are very good at doing things that make business sense. And actually excluding 25% of your customer base probably seems like a bad idea. It really does. I, I mean, this is this is a fantastic development. So good to see a major bank signing up to it as well. We know that a lot of the challenger banks have been working with the Money and Mental Health Policy Institute for some time. We know the FCA have been doing tech sprints around this. Um, and so this is a subject near and dear to many people's heart, I'm sure. Fantastic development and absolutely all for it. Uh, I think as well, though, accessibility in the, you know, in the traditional disabilities, in the more physical disabilities, sense had been something that was was well understood and banks have departments around and you know good strides have been made for for a couple maybe even a decade or more uh, a couple of decades in doing that this just seems like yes we're, we're catching up when there's a disability that you can't see or when there's a challenge that you can't see um, that somebody may not always have and isn't always obvious but can really make not only a difference to the customer's life but the customer's affinity with the brand their ability to go on to be financially successful and then maybe even take more products out with you as a bank because you have gained and earned their trust and and that's the thing is is kind of moving from that haha i caught you out here's a fee kind of business model to the i've earned your trust and i'm now i'm gently hopeful that you will be coming to me when I try and cross-sell to you. And you see this in Apple with their no fees, and you see it with the challenger model and the no fees, but also the trust that they win from customers. Trust, I think, as a concept is something that banks always talked about having, but I think that's changing. Yeah, and I think it's something, I think I feel like I mention this every time on the show, where I'm like, you know, fintechs existed because of the financial crisis and the way that people were being treated. There was no trust, there was no honesty, and it really came from this really pure place of wanting to help customers we have monzo and you know comes at transferwise as well who are very open with all of their standards and procedures and try to make it as understandable as possible and um, i think lemonade in the us have done massive strides for this as well where they basically say hey here's the things that you really need to know and we've still got to go to all the legal stuff as well and that's there if you need it but this is kind of it and that actually when i was reading through the um points on kind of the charter for mental health i was kind of like this is what a lot of companies should have always been expected to do you know this mental health is a really important part of it but even people who perhaps don't have mental health issues they will feel that way as well you know you get into debt and that's something that's really really scary and i think every business should should rest on those principles mm. i think in general yeah i think the trust point again is just so important i mean 80% of our growth comes from word of mouth and that's because our customers trust us and want to share that experience that they've had and and to do that is you know the primary thing we think is the transparency amount uh, 
the transparency part about having no hidden fees. And this goes back to exactly what you were saying about the banks tricking people with fees, about um, other financial providers, you know, as we know, and as obviously we spend a lot of time talking about is how much um, banks will hide fees in the rate. They'll they'll advertise that it's no commission, then all of a sudden you've been stung. So I think that trust piece yeah, is definitely the most important. There's also something really subtle about the fact that if you are in debt problems and you are suffering from uh, any any mental health condition at that point, those two can be really compounding. Um, so you know, if you're in debt problems, the chances of depression are higher, and if you have depression, the chances of uh, of, uh, of debt are higher. But also the anxiety that comes with a letter that says final warning on it will further exacerbate that and will not lead to a successful conclusion. And of course, what happens when debts aren't paid off is they go into collections and once they've gone from collections a lot of banks just sell that debt which ends up being bought for pennies on the pound it's bad business to not support your customers it is just really bad business so if if your solution to uh, how you talk to your customers is oh we send a letter maybe actually you're being intimidating to your customers and you hadn't realized it. And I think too often um, the the risk and control teams in banks have assumed that because I've sent a letter, we've covered our backsides. You know, we, we've done the, that's the most legally binding thing. We have sent the letter and it's official and we've informed you. But actually you haven't done the right thing by the customer, especially in the digital age. Yeah, and especially physical health and mental health, um, they're both things that can come and go. It's, uh, a con- it's not a stagnant fixed thing. Um, and it's the sort of thing where interactions with banks especially if you're in financial difficulty they can definitely exacerbate it so it's not just a case let's do this just for people who have a mental health issue now mm. it's let's just ingrain this into our standard practice so that we have a good experience for human beings full stop mm. I, th- I think a, there is an interesting one there like you say it's, this isn't something that's just beneficial for people with mental health problems I'm like I want my bank to talk to me like a normal human being as well yeah. you know like that just seems like yeah. it should be a hygiene thing yeah. um, to a point around like communication it's like you know communicate to people like they're human beings in context based on how they react like yeah. you know it's, it just seems like a normal thing to do doesn't it I think banks send a letter because banks send letters rather than because it's what their customers have preferred and look to be fair to the big banks a lot of them have great digital offerings and increasingly move their comms to to digital but still when the product comes out the first version is oh don't worry we've got the branch to cover it oh don't worry the get out of jail free card as the branch or the letter will cover it but that's not the default anymore. Mm. I guess the, I mean, I, I'm remembering the sort of early days of people trying to implement DDA. I mean, the, the point where it sort of got to with um, accessibility standards was, I mean, the things that you would do to actually enable the screen reader to really understand uh, understand your, your website was equally the things that actually Google needed to understand <laughs> to, to do your screen, to, to, to really, uh, for spiders to really... Um, uh, track and index your website correctly. Yeah. So there's this thing where it's like, I mean, this is good for people with disabilities, but it's great for people good who are just everybody. Exactly. And that yeah. makes total sense. Talk to humans like humans. You find they probably respond better when you've got a problem as well. You know. <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, this is a story over on Finextra. This is NatWest introduced selfie-powered current account opening. So NatWest customers can now open a current account within minutes on their phones by simply taking a selfie um, yada 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 they are using a uh, ID verification called who you which I haven't heard of before uh, I know you know lots of people are kind of using on Fido and authentics and various different players in this space but 
I mean, this is super, super interesting. They've, they've gone to a point where they're, uh, they've piloted this with 60,000 people um, to feel comfortable that they're actually seeing a, a sharp dropout in fraud, which I'm like... Yep. No shit. Um, <laughs> but, um, but is this the big banks kind of catching up a little bit with um, where a lot of the fintechs or I mean, ultimately, if you started a bank today and you were going to do account opening, you would be doing it in this way, right? I have many thoughts. Um, <laughs> so I'll rant so that I can shut up. Um, firstly, great headline, selfie-powered current account opening. I think this has got attention because they've called it selfie-powered. Nobody's called it selfie-powered before. Well done. Um, second thing, a drop in fraudulent applications. Oh my God, I remember pushing in uh, the early uh, sort of 2009, 10, 11, 12, 30, many years in which I was working either as a vendor to banks or inside of a bank. We should just use this. Fraud applications will go down. You would just take a photo of your ID and a photo there and I could check the timestamp and I could check the location of the phone and fraud would go down. Oh, the pushback I, that you would hear internally from fraud experts about, no, no, what we need is to do it via the post. And I'm like, but th there's massive postal fraud. Why would we go for the more fraudulent? Well, well, that's already been risk accepted. And the fact that something had already been risk accepted was the reason why things got done. And I think culturally, um, it's really good to see this shift in a major organization. I, I, I don't mind that it's quote unquote copying a fintech or not. It's the right thing for the customer. It's reducing fraud and it creates better experiences for customers. So I hope we see more of it and I'll shush now. So, so we sound negative, but this is positive. Completely. I, I sound, this was just my passion from having been there and hoped for it earlier. Um, but actually the first one to do it, NatWest, hats off to you. Well done. I hope I see a lot, we see a lot of more of this. And I think the other thing is there are other banks that do this, but they have it as a, a standalone app. I think it has to be baked into your core app as well from an experience standpoint. There you go. What do you guys think? It's cool. I think it's great. I think it's like, yeah, um, I completely agree. It's like, uh, yeah, they are later now, but I think it's good that, uh, to see that the big banks are picking up some of the, you know, the other things that uh, we have some other players that uh, showed it first, but that's like finding its way now for yeah, the market. I think this will impact more customers exactly. than, than anything. Yeah. I mean, like the banks still have like, I think 90% of the market, I think. So it's bringing the innovation to everyone now. So mm. it's good. I think if you read between the lines here and think, well, okay, we know Monzo et al were doing this three plus years ago, you have to consider that NatWest, you know, must have started thinking about even started trying to do this pretty soon after that. Yeah. It just shows you how much of a difficult position they're in to launch these kinds of technologies, or maybe it's compliance that's stopping them either way. Um, how difficult it is for them to do this and how they, that's what they really, really need to change is, is the ability to It's how to the sausage gets made, not the desire to do it. I have no doubt there was absolute desire in all of these organisations to do it. This is like the definition of why competition is good in the market because it makes people innovate, it makes people uh, move forward and, and change their, their products and their offerings to serve a you know, better customer experience. Mm. Do you know what, it's, um, it, it's, it's interesting because there's, there's like a different dynamic kind of opening up, isn't there? We sort of alluded to it a little bit earlier on it's it's not a you know a, a five horse race when it comes to the challenges versus challenges it's like how quickly can the big incumbent organizations really respond to what's happening in the market mm. um, i mean if it's three years worrying and actually it's being in a situation not only is it worrying the speed but probably the the quality and the cost um you know i i worked at a big bank for six years the thing you start with and the beautiful portrait you draw to what is delivered does not 
sort of compute between the two of them type mm-hmm. thing. The the knocking off of the edges and the jettisoning of the features and the capability that you can actually get to market, hard. Um, so, I mean, it's it's that, again, why would that be? That isn't a regulatory thing. It's probably not even arguably a technological thing. It's predominantly a cultural problem. Cultural, yeah, mm-hmm. potentially. I mean, on the regulatory thing, actually, I think what you said, uh, Alfie, about um, this driving, the competition driving change in the market is great. Another great example of this that I really, really like, and it's quite a famous TransferWise story, is how we uh, got the law changed in Singapore to allow this kind of selfie identification. So when we first launched in Singapore a few years ago, we had to open a very, very small office and people had to come in in person with their ID in order for us to verify them. Wow. And, and we lobbied the regulator there in order to get this kind of selfie law in and had it changed and obviously that's not just had impact on TransferWise it's great for us but mm. it's had impact on all the other fintechs in the, in Singapore yeah I don't think it's going to be the last time a, a more innovative player sets a standard that to your point a big incumbent organisation can bring it to you know arguably tens of millions of people but it's an interesting thing isn't it uh, you know can the we've seen this actually with uh, Barclays with uh, Freeze Card as well you know that took gambling block and yeah. transactions block and, and to you know there are I think of the incumbents, Barclays is really, really good at that. They see something in the market that customers love and they, they get it in the app pretty quickly. I mean, I've always been brought up to think imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. So, uh, I mean, uh, on that note. All right, moving on to our and finally story for this week. So this is over on Business Insider. This is the geekiest engagement announcement ever. So this is Stripe CEO Patrick Collinson got engaged this weekend. Congratulations to Patrick. Um, and he announced it on Twitter with a very entertaining joke. So he tweeted, hit our engagement metrics this week, uh, this weekend, uh, which is... Which included a picture of him and his now fiance getting engaged in some mountain scene looking very cute. Which was then followed up by his brother saying, oof, ratioed. <laughs> and then various <laughs> elements of different Silicon Valley tech execs chiming in with, that's one way to increase your user retention. And how much testing did you do on the invite flow? Which is, um, I'm sort of, I mean, when geeks get to get married i'm so happy (laughs) yeah it's it is cute i have to say i I do remember seeing the pictures of somebody getting engaged with fintech insider swag all over them yeah sorry Haley. um yes there are pictures of me uh asking my now fiance to marry me uh which was in joshua tree beautiful part of the world actually hired a photographer so got great photos but of course i was wearing fintech insider swag (laughs) living the brand um, but, uh, you know, I, I assume Hayley knows what she was getting herself into. So shout out, Hay. And I'm presuming you guys already designed the 11FS wedding dress for the wedding? Uh, well, she was actually trying it on just today. Excellent. Um, but it, I don't <laughs> believe it was an 11FS wedding dress. Although there are 11 tables, of course. Well, Obviously. there are actually seven tables, but there's a table 11. That's where I'm sitting. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have much of a rider, but when I do... Anyway, that wraps up this week's new show. Thank you so much to all of our guests joining us this week. So where can people find more from you, James? Uh, Yeah, I'm at James Ferretti on Twitter. You can probably find me on LinkedIn. Your only challenge is to spell it. (laughs) It'll be in the show notes. Good luck with that. All right, Ivo. Uh, Yeah, so that's uh, Ivo, I-V-O Weavers, uh, both on LinkedIn and Twitter. Search for that and you'll find some more. There you go. Alfie. Uh, It's Alfie Marsh, Marsh with an S on LinkedIn, or you can find out more at spendesk.com. Very good. Mel? 
at Mel Palmer 28 on Twitter. Um, and we are at exoinvesting.com and we have some exciting news coming out next week. So if you're interested in anything wealth tech, keep your eyes a open. A bit of wealth tech. Yeah. Right? I do love <laughs> foreshadowing. It's a wonderful yeah. thing. <laughs> Simon, uh, on your favorite podcast client, do check out Blockchain Insider if you want to hear all about Libra, Facebook coin, and everything that's been happening with the crypto markets in the past week or two, which have been going banana. Wonderful. Uh, as for me, I, I fancy some emails next week. So david at 11fs.com, drop me an email randomly. Don't care about what. All right. Uh, <laughs> what do you think of this week's show? Damn it. That's going to be what the email's about, isn't it? <laughs> uh, let us know over on Twitter on at Fintech Insiders. Our email is over on podcast at 11fs.com. And if you don't forget, if you love the show, please, please, please leave us a review over on iTunes. We super duper live, love reading those reviews. Uh, find, I'm really struggling for some reason. Uh, uh, reading reviews, yes, but show notes, no. I know. I don't know. <laughs> find us over on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Periscope, and I mean, pretty much every other social presence at this point. And if you you liked this you can actually see us do this type of stuff over on fintech insider on air as well thanks for listening goodbye